You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. Would you rather know when you're going to die or how you're going to die? Would you rather know when you're going to die or how you're going to die? Heard this question this week, made me think. And as I spent at least a minute or two thinking about it, I think most of us, if we had to answer that question, if we had to pick one, I think most of us would choose to know when we're going to die, right? I think most of us would choose to know how much time we have left because how much time we have left should inform how we live in the present. Our text today is 1 Peter 4. Verses 7 through 11, if you're not already there, would encourage you to take your Bibles and turn there or turn them on and get there. The Apostle Peter begins our section of chapter 4 and verse 7 with this statement. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. That's one way to get people's attention, right? What a statement. The end of all things is at hand. Peter tells these Christians this statement for a purpose. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, the purpose of this, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I have a confession to make to you today. I coached a baseball game today. I'm one of those parents that's now coached On a Sunday, don't tell my grandmother, please, that I coached on a Sunday. Would not have been there if it interfered at all with this, but was able to do that today. But I've been coaching a lot of baseball this spring with my oldest son's team. And one of the things, even though his games are six innings, that I found very few of his games actually go the full six innings because there's a time limit to it. And one of the things I've learned that even though baseball is a very slow game, when there's a time limit, the way you play the game is very much dependent upon how much time is left. If that's true in sports, how much more true is that in life? The amount of time that we have left should inform how we live. The testimony of scripture is really clear. Our time in this life is short. James tells us that this life is a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. And Peter here in 1 Peter 4 is telling his readers, these Christians who are suffering, how to be faithful in this vapor of a life, how to be faithful with the time they have left. Growing as a Christian, what we often call sanctification, just means growing as a Christian. Growing as a Christian is really growing more and more to live every day of your life in light of the final day. Growing as a Christian means that we're growing to live every day of our lives more and more in light of the final day. There's a great little book by Randy Alcorn called The Treasure Principle. I know we're talking about giving uh, over these next few weeks. It's the best little book that I've read on giving. I was trying to find it today. I think I gave it to one of you to read and I haven't gotten it back, so I don't have it to hold up for you. But Randy Alcorn has this great little illustration that he gives in it. We're saying, when we think about eternity, think about a line that goes on and on forever. 
He says, if we think about that line that goes on and on forever, our lives in this life are just like a little dot on that line, a speck on that line. And the problem for us, even as Christians, we often live like everything is about this little dot, right? The testimony of the scriptures is clear that this dot matters a whole lot. And one of the reasons why this dot matters a lot, what we do in these 50, 60, 70, 100 years that we have in this life is because it has implications not just for this life, but beyond. How we live this dot, how we live in this vapor, again, should be informed by eternity, should be informed by the end. But here, I, I wanna stop and ask a question in light of Peter's statement in verse seven, that the end of all things is at hand. I think if we step back and think about that, we're in the 21st century. Peter is writing this in the first century. We're here, we're still around 2,000 years later, right? The end of all things is at hand. Was Peter wrong for saying this? Peter was a fallible man. The scriptures testify to this. The scriptures also testify to us that the authors of scripture were led along by the Holy Spirit of God, an infallible spirit, the spirit of God that we just sang to, we prayed for the spirit to come help us. The spirit was inspiring these fallible people to write infallible truth. So no, we as Iron City Church do not believe that Peter got this wrong. Peter knew that no one knew the day or the hour of Jesus' return. How did Peter know that? Because Jesus told him that, right? But what Peter did know was that Jesus had finished the work of salvation. And now Jesus' return was imminent, meaning it could happen at any time. The scripture is saying, now in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are living in the last days. But a helpful thing that the Africa Bible commentary pointed out to me this week, was that the Greek word here for end, that's translated as end, at least in my translation, is telos, which can also mean the goal of all things. So here, Peter's saying the end or the goal of all things is at hand. The climactic goal of God's redemptive plan has come through Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus now ascended to the Father where he is now reigning and ruling over all things until all things are put under his feet. Peter also tells us in 2 Peter 3 that even though some people are going to mock and ask questions about Jesus' return, saying, hey, Jesus said he's coming back, where is he? If they're doing that in the first century, they're gonna be all the more doing that in the 21st century, right? But Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, the reason why Jesus hasn't come back yet is because the Lord is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Also in 2 Peter 3, he says, in light of the end of all things being at hand, in light of the new heavens and new earth, in light of Jesus coming back to judge, he says, how should we now live in light of these things? It doesn't say we should live, just throw ourselves into hysteria. He doesn't say, as often Christians have done, we should get out these charts and try to map out all of what the second coming is going to look like. 
But in 2 Peter 3, he says, what sort of lives ought we to live in holiness and godliness in light of Jesus' return? And here in 1 Peter 4, he says pretty much the same thing. The end should drive us, look at this, to be self-controlled and sober-minded, he says. That's the reason why he's given us this. So we'd be self-controlled and sober-minded. If you look back at verse one of chapter four, Peter uses this picture of a soldier being armed for a purpose, being prepared for battle. We're not to be drunk, but to be sobered. And one way to be sober is through prayer, to be alert. Paul says in Ephesians chapter six, not only in light of the end, but in light of the warfare, the spiritual battles are going on. We should pray at all times in the spirit. In light of the end, in light of the goal of all things being here, should affect how we pray and should affect how we live as the people of God. Peter tells us more of how to live in light of the end in verses eight through nine. Look at that with me. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Knowing that the Lord is going to return should lead you to embody the good news of Jesus to one another. You can look at that again. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Verse nine, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. We're to embody the good news of Jesus and how we relate to one another. We're to love as we've been loved. We're to cover sins. We're to show grace to one another because we've been shown grace by God and Jesus. We're to welcome one another in hospitalities. We talked about last week from Romans 15, 7. We're to welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed you. He says, we must do this earnestly, fervently, he says. This is, again, a athletic phrase that Peter is using here of reaching towards the goal. We're to outdo one another in showing honor and showing love as the people of God. This is the best game to play in the church. This is how, Christian, you can redeem that competitive spirit that maybe has caused a lot of harm in your life, how you can redeem it for good. Outdo one another in showing love and honor to your fellow Christians. And if you're wired like me, not only are you competitive, but you love to-do lists. And according to Peter here, at the top of the to-do list in light of the end is to love. And not just any old kind of love, earnest love. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins, Peter says. I read this week, Someone say, our public witness as Christians should make people say, look at the power of their love and not look how much they love power. Our public witness as Christians should make people say, look at the power of their love and not look how much they love power. Too often, it seems, professing Christians choose to love power over love for people. This brings great harm to the witness of Christians when we choose power over people. Jesus did not say, you'll know that my disciples by all these culture wars that we went out there. 
how much power we're able to amass, how big a voting block is. Jesus says, you will know, they will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Pa- Pastor Isaac has said often to our staff that we want a culture of thick grace in our church. Thick grace. The most repeated verse in our house right now is Ephesians 4.32. Paul says to be kind to one another and tenderhearted, forgiving as God in Christ has forgiven you. Because the truth is forgiven people forgive. Loved people love. And we need to know that love isn't just some kind of feeling, deep feeling that we have. Biblical love leads to sacrificial action, sacrificing for the good of others. Again, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. You'll keep my commandments. You'll do what I ask you to do. You'll show your love for me. It's really important that we tell people that we love them, not only because we don't know, again, how long our lives are gonna be and we wanna make sure that we communicate. I know people have, as a pastor, communicated to me their regrets for how the last conversation with someone went. But not only should we tell one another we love one another because we don't know if it's our last conversation with them, but we just need to hear when people love us, right? We need to be able to express that to one another. I say I love you in our house hundreds of times per week. You can ask my children. But it's important not just to say you love someone, but to show them you love them by your actions. And actually, it can be really harmful if you tell someone that you love them over and over again, but never prove it with sacrificial actions. So how do we practically do this as Christians? Look again at verse nine. It gives us an application here. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Last year, we went through a sermon series. Actually, the last series that we did, not going through a book of the Bible, was a series focusing on the one another's from the New Testament. And the one another's are all over the New Testament. And this is one of the one another's that we didn't get to. One of the reasons why we did that sermon series is because after the past two years, where we have been more isolated from one another than ever, we need to be reminded of what our life together as the people of God should look like. And COVID has made this really challenging for us. I mentioned last week, in many ways, I think our welcoming hospitable muscles have atrophied over the last couple years. COVID was the first time, probably in all of our lifetimes, that as Christians, love did not look like moving towards people, but keeping our distance from them. That's a really strange place to be as a Christian. But thankfully, COVID numbers have been going down for a while now. We're able to move towards folks more and more. And thankful as well that we've have, and we do have some really faithful models of hospitality in our church family. The Quidons. Scott and Jane Quidon are incredible models of hospitality in our church family. Just last weekend, they had multiple nights back-to-back of hosting different, a women's event, a sending time for Pastor Demetrius as we're sending him to Florida. 
You know, we've got some faithful models of what this looks like in our church family that we should learn from. But one of the things we also need to know as we look at the New Testament is that showing hospitality is often a reference to showing hospitality to strangers, to people that you don't know, to fellow Christians who you don't know. And so in many ways, we have more of an opportunity to show hospitality on Sundays to people that we don't know and welcoming them in than we do throughout the week when you're inviting your friends over to have dinner with you. Welcoming someone here on Sunday is more in line with biblical hospitality than just having some friends that you invite over to your house. The New Testament has a lot to say about hospitality. And one of the reasons why Christians need to welcome other Christians in, strangers that were fellow Christians, is because inns, the place where like hotels in the first century, were really functional brothels. And so it could be a place of temptation, but also just a place if you're trying to live a life that's above approach, you don't want to be. So Christians depended upon one another to open their homes and their lives, even to strangers that were fellow Christians as they were passing through. But in Luke 14, Jesus tells a man who's just invited him over for dinner, hey, you don't just need to invite people over for dinner that can invite you back. He says, actually, invite people into your home and into your life that can't return the favor. Jesus also tells us in Matthew 25, when we welcome people in, when we show hospitality to, when we care for, provide for the needs of those that our society count as the least, it's as if we're doing it to Jesus himself. We must be a hospitable people as Jesus' people. We must welcome others as we have been welcomed. Hospitality means giving of your time, your home, your resources to those in need, especially to fellow Christians. Paul says in Galatians 6.10, to do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. We have a responsibility to all those who are made in the image of God to show them dignity, to show that they have dignity and value and worth and provide for them to meet their needs when we can. But we have an even greater responsibility to do that for fellow Christians, to do good to all people, especially those in God's family. But the focus of this sermon, the reason for choosing this text comes from verses 10 and 11. Our view of the end should change the way that we use the gifts that God has given us now. Look at verse 10 and 11 with me. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So this Thursday is a date on the church calendar called Ascension Day. Ascension Day is 40 days from Resurrection Sunday, which was the time that Jesus spent 40 days with the disciples after resurrection before he ascended to his Father. Many Christians don't talk a lot about the Ascension. I think that's really a failure for us as pastors because we haven't talked a lot about the Ascension. But the Ascension of Jesus is crucial. Ephesians chapter four says that Jesus ascended on high and gave gifts to men. And then he lifts different gifts and different offices that Christ has given to his church. 
So Jesus finished the work of salvation. He died in our place on the cross, saying, it is finished. He defeated the power of sin and death through his resurrection. He spent 40 days with his disciples, then he ascended to the Father's right hand. And through the Son, the Father sent the Spirit into the world. And Jesus, before he dies, though, keeps telling his disciples that it's better for you that I leave you so the Father can send another helper to you, so the Father can send the Spirit to you. What Jesus is saying that it's better for you to have the Spirit in you than have Jesus walking around with you. And I know that sounds kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? Because I think for me, I would be a lot more holy if I had Jesus walking around with me every day. But we know from the scriptures that is not true. We actually know from the guy who wrote this to us in 1 Peter 4 that that's not true, right? Peter looks like an idiot over and over again when he has Jesus walking around with him. He puts his foot in his mouth over and over again. He goes from deny, saying, Jesus, I'll die for you, like willing to fight for Jesus, to just a little bit later in the same day, denying Jesus. But Peter, again, a few days later, goes from someone who had just denied Jesus to in Acts chapter two, standing up and preaching Jesus with no regard for his life. What happened? The Holy Spirit came, right? Pentecost happened. The Spirit descended. The Spirit filled. Peter's an example that it's better for us to have the Spirit in us than having Jesus walking around with us. The Holy Spirit coming was a game changer for Jesus' disciples, and now it is for all the people of God. Now all the people of God have the Spirit of God. That's one of the differences between Old Covenant and Israel. It's a mixed bag. Some people, the Spirit comes upon people at different times. Now in the New Covenant, we all have the Spirit of God. We are all indwelled with the Spirit. Now he's given us all spiritual gifts to be able to serve the Lord and build up his church. We must remember that we have been saved by our Savior and given his Spirit not to serve yourself, but so that you can serve the Savior and your fellow saints. It's not about you. You've been given the Spirit, not ultimately for you, but so you can serve your Savior and your fellow saints. Your gifts are not just for you, but for the glory of God and for the good, the good of others. We must remember that your spiritual gifts are gifts. They're gifts that God has given to you. They're gifts to be used to build up the church, to build up the body of Christ. The body is the picture that Paul uses most often to describe the church. If you will flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul used the same picture in Romans chapter 12. This picture of the body. I often don't have you, we reference a lot of, I reference a lot of for other pastors while I preach. Often don't have you turn there because don't want you to get kind of lost from the main thing we're looking at in front of us. But I do want you to see this. I'm gonna read a little longer section to us here from 1 Corinthians 12. 
beginning in verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one of it individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I do not belong to the body, that would, make it, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not the eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that it lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Brothers and sisters, again, this is the clearest picture that Paul paints for us of what the body of Christ is of how we are all a individual member of that part that need one another. Every part of Jesus' body is extremely valuable. Visible parts aren't more valuable than parts that are not seen by everyone. Big parts aren't more valuable than small parts. We all need each other. So flip back to 1 Peter 4. Look again at verse 10 and 11 here. It says that each received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. There's a number of different lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. But here, Paul really simplifies these gifts into serving gifts and speaking gifts. Serving and speaking both incredibly valuable to the body, to the church. He says, whenever you speak, whoever speaks should speak the word of God as if they're speaking the oracles of God. If we speak the word of God, we will never run out of things to say. When you serve, you're to serve in the strength that God supplies. And if we serve in the strength that God supplies, we'll never burn out. As we saw in Psalm 100, we're to serve the Lord with gladness. We're to serve him the strength that he supplies. But I think if we're honest, even though we maybe know what Paul has to say in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, maybe know what Peter has to say here in 1 Peter 4, we can begin to think that the person up here speaking on Sundays to primarily adults is more important than the person downstairs speaking primarily to children. But I can say on the authority of the scriptures, that's not true. Just think about it. 
Those who are serving downstairs, speaking to our children downstairs, have the opportunity to speak to countless children. Who knows the future elders and deacons that are down there? Who knows the lives that are being saved from the despair of this world as you have the opportunity to speak the hope and light and life of Jesus into the life of a child? Who knows the trajectories of families for generations that are being shaped by your influence of speaking the truth of Jesus, but also just showing the hope of Jesus in the way you relate to the children downstairs? Again, I know it's already been mentioned in here. I know we're feeling uh, not having the majority of our college students in here on Sundays. We're, we're a little lighter on Sundays when college students aren't here. We miss them. We feel that up here, but they feel it all the more downstairs. And so again, if you are looking for a way to serve our church family, just once a month would be great for you to plug in downstairs and be able to serve and to invest in the coming generations of our church family. But that's not the only place to serve. Some of those profound experience I've had of communion with the Lord have been as I have come up here and heard people speak over me. This is my body. This is the body of Christ broken for you. And this is Jesus' blood shed for you. And I go back to my seat and I remember that Jesus' promises to me are as real as what I'm holding in my hands. The Lord has met with me in deep ways, but that bread and that cup doesn't just happen. It doesn't magically appear, right? People are preparing those things so that we can have deep experience of a communion with the Lord in the service. Our tech team gets here early every week so that you can hear what's going on in our service. Whoever's preaching the word of God, you can hear us more clearly. Again, no matter what it is, no matter what ways you're serving, we need you to use your gifts. We need to use your time your investment in our church family in order for us to be healthy. We need people speaking as if they're speaking the oracles of God. We need people who are serving our church to serve in the strength that he supplies. We read Exodus 31 earlier, where again, God in the old covenant is gifting people with special gifts in order to work on the temple and all different kinds of things. But in the new covenant, again, we see God giving to his people gifts gifts from his spirit. And as a pastor, people ask me, how do I know what my spiritual gift is? I know, I don't know when it was, maybe in the 80s or 90s, these spiritual gift tests were formed and those things can be helpful. But I'll share with you two ways that I found to be more helpful in discerning what your spiritual gift is. One is just serving a lot of different places in the church. Again, there's some places where, again, we just need people to fill in those. The hands team just need people with hands to be able to serve in, right? Again, as you serve in different places in the church, you may find, hey, th this is really life-giving for me. This is something that really nourishes me as I'm serving. That often is a sign, hey, the Lord maybe is giving you particular gifts and nourishment through serving and using your gift. So maybe you should plug all the more into that. But the second way is, is a more negative way to think about this. So not just serving. I want you to think about what's frustrating for you in the church. This is maybe the clearest way I've found for people to discern what their spiritual gift is, is what is frustrating for you? Where do you see weakness in the church? If you think our mercy ministries are terrible, ironically, that may mean that God has wired you and given you a spiritual gift of mercy. If you think our evangelism is awful, again, you've got eyes to see 
people that are lost that need Jesus. So we need you helping equip us in evangelism. I mean, go down the line. If you're naturally critical of teaching, again, maybe the Lord has wired you to be a teacher. So if you come and complain about something, your frustration, I often think people are just confessing their spiritual gift to me. So I, I, I promise the pastor, I'm, I'm, I'll try my hardest not just to flip it back on you and saying, hey, you need to be there. Because again, if you're constantly critical of things, we may need to see you grow in some things before we actually make you a teacher in our church. But again, you may be discovering the way that God has wired and gifted you. To be able to serve and to use your gifts in order to build up Jesus' body. Peter is clear here, whether speaking or serving, both are to be done for the glory of God. Look at the end of verse 11. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. So how do we bring God glory in everything? By obeying verse 10, by being good stewards of everything that God has given us. Scripture is very clear There is nothing that you have that you have not received. Every good thing you have is coming down as a good gift from the Father of lights, from our good heavenly Father. And we're called as the people of God, as God's children, to steward those good gifts that our Father has given us by Spirit for His glory and for the good of others. Being a steward of something means you've been, something's been given to you to manage. It wasn't yours to begin with. It's been given to you. It's not been given to you just for your sake, but to steward it for someone else's sake. And hear me, as you'll probably hear us say last week and next week, this is not less than money, but it's so much more. This is about our lives. But I do want to confess to you, I feel like I've done a really poor job as one of your pastors of discipling our church to be good stewards of the money and gifts that God has given to us over the last five years. I think much of that is due to overreactions in me. When it comes to money, I've heard many so-called pastors be really abusive and manipulative in the way they've talked about money in the church. They've twisted things from the scriptures in order for their own greed to be satisfied. When it comes to serving, some churches make it seem like the height, the pinnacle of following Jesus is being a part of one of their Sunday serve teams. And I don't want you to believe that lie either. But Pastor Isaac is right. The way we deal with these abuses isn't by avoiding talking about these things, but by positively teaching the scriptures and modeling what faithfulness looks like with our lives. Hear me, Jesus doesn't need your money, but he wants all of your heart. But as Pastor Isaac reminded us from Matthew 6 last week, Jesus' clear is that your heart will follow your treasure. What you invest your time and money into, your heart is going to follow. If you have felt your love towards the Lord or his church growing cold over the last two years, invest yourself more in a Jesus' church and see if your heart doesn't follow. Put Jesus' word to the test. He says it's going to happen. Invest yourself, invest your time and money and see if your heart doesn't follow. Jesus doesn't need your money, but he wants all of you. When Jesus was asked about money in the gospels, when he was asked about paying taxes to Caesar, he asked for a coin. 
And then he asked a question, whose image is on this? And the answer was Caesar's image was on it, right? You remember what Jesus says? He said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. I grew up in the church as a pastor's kid, and for almost all my life, until just a few years ago, I missed the significance of what Jesus is actually saying there. Again, think about the coin. He's saying, this has Caesar's image on it. You should give it to him. But give to God what belongs to God. What has God's image on it? You do. You have God's image on you. So what are you to give to God? All of you. All of you is to be lived to God's glory because you have God's image all over you. You are meant, we were made to reflect God's image and his goodness and glory to the world. That's why that verse, again, some of us memorize as kids, but we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why that's such a profound thing because we are made to reflect the glory of God. We're made to image God's glory with all of our lives. And in light of God making you in his image, in light of Jesus coming to redeem you through his death and resurrection, in light of his spirit coming to fill you, in light of the end of all things being at hand and being upon us, we're to spend the rest of our days serving the Lord, serving and loving our neighbors as ourselves, building up Jesus' church. This is what you were made for. This is what I was made for. Mark 10, 45, Mark records for us that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and lay down his life as a ransom for his people. We respond each week to the Lord's word by coming to the Lord's table. We can come to this table because Jesus has taken up the servant's towel and has literally served you to death. As we come, we take the bread. Remember that Jesus' body was broken, the bread of life. Jesus' body was broken to the point of death so that he might offer you eternal life. We come and we take the cup. Remember that Jesus' blood was shed so that you might be cleansed from all of your sin. We prayed a prayer of confession earlier. Pastor Isaac prayed for us. Again, no matter what you've done this week, no matter what you looked at this week, no matter what you said, no matter what came out of your mouth, no matter the bad things you did or the good things you left undone, God and his grace in Jesus can cleanse you from all of those things. And if you're trusting in Jesus, he has cleansed you from all those things. And we get to come and hold these things in our hands and we remember that God's promised us in Jesus are this real and that Jesus really is coming back. That's what Paul tells us. We're gonna partake of this together until the Lord comes again. But this table is for those who are turning from their sin and trusting in Jesus. And if that's not you, if you're here and you're just here to listen and figure out more what Christians believe or maybe a friend brought you, we're, we're so glad that you're here. We'd ask that you wouldn't come to this table, but we'd love to, you to come to us. I'll be at this door, Pastor Isaac will be at this door. We'd love to begin a conversation with you afterwards about what does it mean to know and follow Jesus and get to know you more. But for those who have turned Bruce in and trusted in Jesus, would ask for you now to take whatever time you need in your seat 
to repent, to confess your sins to the Lord, knowing the promises of the scriptures, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and justice to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So take whatever time you need to repent, to remember what God's done for you in Jesus. But this table isn't a somber table. Sometimes we make it that as Christians. This is a table for rejoicing in what God's done for us in Jesus. So take whatever time you need to remember and repent, but come and rejoice in this table with us. Let me pray the Lord give us grace to do that. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Jesus. Father, we thank you that Jesus has finished the work of salvation, that he has ascended to your right hand and sat down because the work is complete and now sent the spirit into the world. And now the gospel is going forth and bearing fruit in all the world. Now the spirit has come to each one of us who've trusted in Jesus to empower us to more faithfully serve you and to serve one another. So I pray you'd give us grace to do that. Give us grace to serve in the strength that you supply. When we open our mouths, may we speak as those who are speaking the oracles of God. Father, give us grace to respond to this word in repentance and faith now. And do this all for our good and the building up of Jesus' church, but above all, it's for your glory in Christ. And ask these things in Jesus' name.